Happy Sunday. Glad to have you guys here. We're continuing through our Prophets, Priests, and Kings series. Uh, last week, uh, being Easter and the week before that, we looked at who all the prophets, all the priests, all the kings are pointing to. King Jesus, the true and better king. Uh, we looked at how he's a humble king on Palm Sunday and a joyful or joy-filled king on Easter Sunday last week. Today we're going back to the Old Testament again, continuing through prophet, priests, and kings. And we're going to look at a new king today, uh, a more hopeful king than the first king. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And as you make your way to 1 Samuel chapter 16, those of us that call West Cabarrus home, I uh, just want to encourage you a little bit with CityServe coming up here at the end of the month. End of April, we're going to have a weekend that we try to love and serve our city. Our vision is that we would help the gospel go from neighborhoods to nations. This is a way for us to help the gospel go to our neighborhoods. Our prayer and our desire is for us to impact at least 1,500 lives in a very tangible way this uh, coming city serve. And so we see the boxes in the back. Thank you for everybody who's already given. Uh, if you've got one of those lists, you see all the different supplies that we're raising. But what I want to do is for us as a church to have a a face uh, with the supplies that we're giving and the number of 1,500 people. So our goal, our prayer is that we'll be able to impact 450 teachers in our local schools around the area. And we don't just serve them on city serve. We do things through the, throughout the months to love and to care for those teachers. And so this is just another one of those opportunities for us as a church to look at people that are often forgotten and uh, pursue jobs that aren't thanked for many times. So we're going to be able to impact those teachers, 450. The food that we're raising is going to actually go out to support a local neighborhood that's a more needy neighborhood. We're going to be able to actually go door to door and pass out food and share the gospel with these families. And the extra food that we have is going to go to local homeless shelters like Charlotte Rescue Mission and Salvation Army. So great opportunities to serve and care for those who are without homes at this time. We also are going to raise some gifts to be able to give to more than 100 kids who are in a local children's hospital just to kind of brighten their day and let them know that there are people that are thinking about them and caring for them, even though they're not our kids. Uh, they're kids within our city that we care about. And so that's going to be a number of that. We also are looking to impact six local police stations to be able to love and serve those that protect and serve us. And we're grateful for them. Got one in the back today with us. Thankful for you, uh, Jolly. Very grateful. And then uh, we're hoping to impact more than 300 hospital workers on that Saturday through the things that you're giving. So all I would say is don't grow weary in, do, in doing good. I know we do this each year, but it does have impact. We get to share the gospel, and we're seeing lives impacted because of your faithfulness to give. But for us to be able to impact 1,500 people, what that means is that we as a church, each family needs to be able to bring at least three boxes worth of food and supplies to be able to impact all these different people's lives. And so love for you, even if you've already brought some, we're still in need. Grab some of those in the back. You see there's still boxes there you can take. Let's fill those up. Let's impact our city for the gospel of Jesus Christ and see lives changed in some amazing ways. And I would say if you haven't signed up to serve, there's plenty of opportunities for you to sign up to serve as well. And let me just say to families out there specifically, this is not necessarily eating up your entire Saturday. Some of these projects only take an hour, maybe an hour and a half to put these supply boxes together that'll go to the hospitals or go to the local schools. And so there's plenty of opportunities for you to step up and to serve that are kid-friendly as well as not going to... Uh, eat up your entire day, but it's a great tangible way for us to love and to serve our city 
in the name of Jesus Christ. So continue, continue in that. Don't grow weary in that. And let's see what God does in and through us in the weeks ahead. Let me pray for us, and we'll dive into this sermon today. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you first this morning for the hands that you've given us that we can serve others through weekends like City Serve. God, thank you for the finances that you've blessed us with that we can use to meet needs within our city. God, we praise you for the heart that you've given us to feel the sense of the needs within our city. God, we also praise you today for the ears that you have blessed us with in order to hear your word. We ask as we hear it that you would help us to understand it and apply it to our lives. God, and I ask that you would open up our eyes that we behold wondrous things from your word. And Lord, give us the grace to be able to see the way that you see. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, back in the 15th century, true story, there was a, a, a giant block of marble that you would normally at that time use for sculpting or use for art. And year after year, these different artists would come in and they could not sell this giant block of marble. Everybody looked at it and they're like, there's no way you can chisel anything out of that. And it became a, a famous rock because they couldn't sell it for 40 years. For 40 years, different sculptors and different artists would come by and they'd look at this and be like, there's nothing we can do with that. There's nothing we can do with that. And so it got the nickname, the giant. Everybody knew in the town, like, there's this piece of rock, piece of marble that this guy cannot sell. It's just sitting there. So it became kind of weather-worn and started to look a little uh, more decayed just because of being left for 40 years sitting there. Well, there's one artist that, that came, and when he saw it, he paused and he looked, and he looked, and then he told the person that was selling it, I'm going to carve an angel out of that rock. And the person who said that was a man named, uh, the famous artist named Michelangelo, who later painted the Sistine's Chapel. And he would eventually work and craft this massive block of marble into what we know today as the statue of David. All the other artists, all the other people throughout time looked at the statue and said, nope, the appearance, there's nothing we can do. There's no way that we can work and build and do anything with that piece of marble. And the artist, Michelangelo, looked and said, no, I, I see something deeper. I'm going to carve something beautiful out of this. See, he had a different perspective than everybody else. And I tell you that today because this passage we're going to look at, we're going to see David. But ultimately, this passage is not about David. It's not. He is going to be anointed as the next king over God's people, but it's not ultimately about David. There's an important verse that all of chapter 16 is framed around, and it's verse 7. If you have your Bible already open there, you can look down to it. But I pull out this verse first because it's important. It's what everything else is about in chapter 16. And it says this, For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In this chapter, it's all about sight. It's all about seeing. You're going to see multiple people have different perspectives and different thoughts, and they're seeing different things. But then it's going to wrap us back to verse 7 again and again and again. But the Lord sees differently. The Lord has eyes to see as an artist. The Lord has eyes to see what others cannot see, and he's going to bring beauty 
out of all of this. So let's start in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and he came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling, saying, do you come peaceably? And he said, I come peaceably to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked upon Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or his height of stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outer appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Samuel made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And they sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. From that day forward, Samuel rose and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as, as I was reading this this week, and maybe as you're sitting here today and you're hearing me read it, we already know the finish line, right? We know who the king is. We know that the king is King David. It's a famous person who, whose name is mentioned 600 times plus in the Old Testament and more than 60 times in the New Testament. Like, we know that. But God knew that as well. God knew which son of Jesse he was going to choose. And so the question is, why did God go through this whole drama and this whole situation if he already knew that David was going to be the king? I mean, think about it. Why didn't he just come to, to Samuel, God this is, and say, Samuel, there's a small, young, ruddy boy named David. He's Jesse's son. And you're going to go and you're going to anoint him as the next king of Israel. Why not give him all of those details and just say, go and anoint David as king? He doesn't do that. God chooses to hold back some information because I think he's trying to communicate something extremely important to us today. Remember, it's all about sight. Nine times in these verses it talks about looking or sight or looking into the heart. Something to that way. See, God is wanting both Samuel 
and Jesse to see that their sight is broken. God wants us to see that God looks differently than we do. We have the tendency to look on the appearance, but God looks on the heart. And so each son comes one at a time. It tells the story of how Samuel prepares to go, all showing us how others look and how God has a different perspective. And so church family, I want us to, to look through the eyes of Samuel, look through the eyes of Jesse, but then my prayer for us this week is that we be able to see through the eyes of grace this morning, through the graceful eyes of our Lord. So let's first look at Samuel. Let's look at what Samuel sees and his perspective and how he's viewing everything, how Samuel sees. See, Samuel's sight is blurred from seeing how God sees. And there's two main reasons why that we find in this text. The first is this, that Samuel has got blurry vision because of pains of the past. Pains of the past. Verse 1, it says that he grieved over Saul. And God almost convicts him here. He's like stirring in his heart a little bit, saying, hey, hey, why are you still grieving over the past? Why are you still mad and upset about Saul? Because Saul had done a lot of broken things. Saul was the, the first king of Israel, certainly not the last and certainly not the best. See, there was a lot of tra tragedy in the life of Saul. A few weeks ago, Pastor Charlie talked about how Saul refused to wait upon the Lord. He did things his own will and his own way and his own timing. And what we find in chapter 13 is that Samuel comes to Saul and he's like, Saul, you're, you're breaking my heart because you're doing all these foolish things. Stop doing foolish things. And he's grieving in chapter 13. And then we see that in chapter 15, things get worse. That Saul makes more dramatic failures. And Samuel gets angry again. And it says that he cried out to the Lord because of Saul. I mean, there are pains from the past where he's like, this is not the way this king thing was supposed to work out. I know that God said it wasn't the ideal way, but it's got to be better than this. So all the tragedy of Saul's failures and continual failures that we'll find, Samuel's overwhelmed by that. He cannot see that God and his sovereignty and providence has everything in his hand. He's continuing to grieve and to think about the past, and he's so tied to the past that he can't look to the future, to what God is going to do. See, Samuel grieves over the broken past, but God sees a bright future. Samuel is grieving over Saul, but the Lord is preparing David. Samuel sees and is disappointed because of the past, but God sees the promise of the future. And I would say it's often the same way for us, that our true story doesn't really start until our preconceived plans fail for our lives. You see, Samuel doesn't see that the best is yet to come, that David is going to be a far, far better king than Saul, and far greater and far better would be King Jesus that comes from this line. He has no idea because he can't see past the pain that he's experienced, the suffering. So his blurry, he has blurry vision. But God, God sees so clearly. And God provides a king. He provides a king. Look in verse 1. It says, I have provided. 
And this word provided is literally translated in the Hebrew, which the Old Testament is written in, I have seen. God is speaking, and he's talking about his eyesight, and he says, I have seen among the sons of Jesse a king for myself. He didn't just provide a king. He's seen it. He knows it's happening. This is how God's eyes look. God's eyes aren't just stuck on Saul and all the problems that Saul did. Instead, he's looking and saying, I have prepared, I have provided, I have seen the coming king. This is precise words that God's word is is highlighting here. Samuel, Samuel might not be able to see what the future holds, but God clearly sees it. Clearly sees it. So he tells Samuel, go. Go, I've already provided the king. I've already provided all that you need. Fix your eyes on me and take the step of faith forward. (laughs) But once again, Samuel is a lot like us. That we hear what God would command us to do. And many times, if we don't know ten steps down the road, we don't take one step forward. You see, God tells him, go. I provided a king. His vision is blurry because of present anxieties. The anxieties of his heart. He tells God in verse 2, how can I do this? How can I go? God, you're telling me that you've provided a king, that you've seen a king. You're telling me where i got to go, and then you're telling me to do this? There's no way. All these anxieties start to come up in Samuel's heart. I can't be obedient to that, and, and this is why. Because the current king, Saul, who's still on the throne that you haven't dismissed but you've just rejected, he'll kill me. And if I tell him that there's another king that God wants me to anoint, he'll kill him too. There's no way this can happen, God. I hear what you're commanding me to do it. I can't do it. All these anxieties are freezing him at the very beginning from being obedient to the Lord. And as I thought about this this week, I just feel like for, for many of us in this culture, This is our response to God's commands. God commands us, and we can't see the future, and so anxiety fills up our hearts. We read God's commands in his word, and we see things like God desires for us to be sexually pure in our thoughts and in our actions. We hear that command, we're like, yes, it's in the Bible, but we sit here and think, but God, how? I mean, look at our culture Look at what, what we find on the TV and, and, and what we see on our phones and how all of it's so easily accessed. There's no way we can be pure in our thoughts or pure in our actions. God, look, look at our world. Like, we see what your command is, but how? How are we going to do that? We, we, we read passages where we see things like God hates divorce. And it's important for us to, to understand it doesn't say that God hates divorced people. Because he doesn't. He loves them. It says that God hates divorce, that, that marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman for one lifetime. This is how God created it and God designed it. And we just look at our lives and we're like, that's hard. I mean, the person that I married 15 years ago or 20 years ago, they're, they're not the same person I, I married today, it seems, right? And so we, we struggle and we war and we're like, man, but God, you're telling me that you, you hate divorce. It would be so much easier just to get out of this. God's word is clear. No. No, it's for one lifetime. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. That's what his word says. But we look at it and we're like, how, God? This is difficult. 
Or we read the passages of Scripture where God calls us to be generous people. He commands it. He doesn't just say, if you want to be generous, be generous. No, he calls us and commands us to be generous people. And we look and we're like, God, look at my bank account. <laughs> like, how in the world am I going to be generous? How, God? I see what you're commanding, but how? And here's the beauty of this passage. Where we don't see a way forward, God makes a way. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. What does God tell Samuel? He says, how? How in the world am I going to do this? And God says, I will show you what to do. Praise God that I don't have to have all answers. I just got to trust the one who does. The one who knows the future. So we don't have to know 10 steps down the road. We just have to have enough faith to take one step and trust God in obedience. We don't have to know how everything's going to turn out in order to have a faithful heart to the Lord. For God says, I will show you what to do. And the same is true for us. God is a God who provides and he guides. So we trust him. Even when our eyes cannot see the way forward. Even though our eyes may be blurred by pains of the past or insecurities and, and anxieties of the present. We trust in the Lord. I love verse 4 of this whole passage. This might be one of the most beautiful verses to me, and we read it so quickly that we miss it. But look at verse 4. What does it say Samuel did? Samuel did what the Lord commanded and went to Bethlehem. That's beautiful. He was obedient. It doesn't say God told him every single thing that was going to happen and removed every anxiety. And so then he did what the Lord commanded him. Or God erased all of those bad memories and pains of the past. And so he did what the Lord commanded him. No, it just says he did what the Lord commanded him. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. All oh, that we would have that heart of obedience. To say, we can't see, our vision is blurred, but God, we trust that you see. Can we take a step of faith forward, reaching out and grasping the hand of God in faith? When God asks us to do hard things, we say, yes, okay, we'll do it. Hard things, hard things like this. Hard things like, be holy as I am holy. That's a hard command, but God's word gives it. To be a pure people. Let's be a forgiving people. Let's compare church. Let us forgive others well. May we forgive our, our bosses and our spouses and our friends and, and even our enemies. May we forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. He has set the standard. Forgive as we have been forgiven. That's hard. But may we be obedient to the commandment of the Lord. Let's be a gospel sharing people. We looked at it last week that God commands us to go to the ends of the earth and to tell people the good news that Jesus is not in the tomb anymore. He is resurrected and he is alive. Church, let us be a sharing people. God commands it. And we share the good news. That is hard. It's hard. There's a lot of anxieties. Maybe there's pains of the past that keep us uh, blinded to what God is doing. God has commanded us, move forward in faith when we cannot see Church, let us be a prayerful people, a prayerful people. Our focus in 2023 is that we would grow in our prayer life. And I believe we have to pray 
Because if we're not praying, if we're not seeking the Lord and remembering who he is, then we are not going to be going to share the gospel. If we're not praying and realizing that he's forgiving us of our sins regularly, we're not going to extend that forgiveness to others. We have to pray because we know that we're not holy, and he alone is holy. And so we're crying out to the Holy One. We have to be a prayerful people, and that's hard. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes intentionality to be a prayerful people. But if we're ever going to overcome the blurry vision of our past and our anxieties, then it's going to start there, church. It's going to start there. So whatever God is calling you to do, however God is stirring in your heart, take that step of faith forward for him, even when you can't see, even when you can't see. Now there's another man that's mentioned in this passage, and it's Jesse. I want us to look at how Jesse sees, because Jesse's vision isn't just blurry. I I believe his vision is blinded. He's blinded by appearances. Now Jesse... Samuel might not know who, who he was. We might be, not be that familiar with who he is. But if you were here in the summer, last summer, we went through the book of Ruth. And this is where Jesse's name first shows up. At the end of Ruth, as it's going through the lineage from those who came from Boaz and Ruth. And Jesse's name is mentioned in there. And why that matters is because ultimately as you trace that lineage down, you'll find that Christ comes from that line. And so right here, when Jesse's name comes up again, they haven't heard about it or thought about it since the time of Ruth, right? And here's Jesse. And the first thing we see with Jesse is that he's all about the appearance. He's all about the external things. So Samuel comes to Jesse and says, hey, God has told me that one of your sons is going to be the next king. So Jesse's mind rushes to the appearance. You know what? This son looks a whole lot like a king. He looks a whole lot like a king. Like from the outside, he's probably a little bit stronger, looks like a warrior, a little bit taller than everybody else. And the only king that they had in their mind at that point was Saul. They're like, you know what? He looks a lot like Saul. He has the appearance of Saul. So this has got to be the next king. This is the one that God has to choose, right? Because this is the one that we look at with our eyes and we see, yeah, this is going to be the next king. This is what he looks like. So what you find is that Abinadab, or uh, Eliab rather, he looked like a king, but he didn't have kingly character. He had the appearance that looked good, but the heart was off. And you'll find as you look at chapter 4 that you see him do some pretty wicked and corrupt things. See, God looked into his heart and he saw that this man was going to follow the same steps that Saul did. He looked a lot like Saul in his appearance, but he also acted a lot like Saul in oppressing and bullying people. And so Samuel's there, and he's like, nope, it's not him. So Samuel's eyes and mind go back to, okay, this son has got to be the son. Abinadab, yeah, if it's not this one, it's got to be Abinadab, right? So he brings him in, and God seemingly whispers again to Samuel, no, it's, it's not him either. Son after son after son walks through, and he's like, no, no, no. And I just wonder what Samuel is thinking, what's running through his mind. Because he's taken that step of faith when he couldn't see, right? Like, fine, God, I'm just going to go ahead and go. I'm going to be obedient to you, and I'm going to go to Bethlehem. And as he goes and as he's there, every son comes through, and God's like, it's not him. It's not him. 
It's not him. And I just wonder, I wonder if Samuel at some point is thinking, man, did I get this wrong? Like, did I misunderstand God's command for my life and what he was telling me to do? Like, I just wonder. Because there's seven sons that came in front of him, and God said no to every single one of them. Every one of them. And it's because God is not looking at appearance, but he's looking at the heart. And so in the middle of this parade of sons forward where he says no, and then there's a statement in verse 7 that we started with where he's wanting us to see. God, the Lord, is wanting us to see, wanting Samuel to see. The Lord doesn't look on the appearance like we do. We spend so much time on our appearance, but the Lord is looking at the hearts. He's looking at the heart. This is how God sees. All of this story is wrapped around verse 7. God is telling them and telling us, don't be fooled by your eyes. Don't just look at appearances. Strain to look at the heart. But if we're honest with ourselves, we spend so much of our time and our energy and our effort focusing on our appearances and the appearances of others. New York Times journalist David Brooks talks about the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And this guy is not a believer. And in here he talks about how we spend so much of our lives and focus and intentionality on resume virtues. And here's some of the resume virtues that he mentions. All these external appearances. They say things like, man, this person accomplished this. She graduated with honors. She knows this person and that person. She has a lot of great references. And those are great things. But notice that, that none of those things ever make it into a funeral eulogy. You realize that? What do people talk about at a funeral? They talk about all the heart issues, not the external things. At a funeral, they'll, they'll talk about how loyal of a friend this person was, how this person was a sacrificial mother and cared for their kids well, how they always put the interests of others first. These are heart issues. These are the eulogy virtues. They always gave people the, the benefit of the doubt. This person was a great dad that put his kids above his career. Those are the things that they talk about. We spend so much time building resume virtues with our life. How much time do we spend building the eulogy virtues? If it's true that God is not looking at our external appearance, he's not looking at our resume, he's looking at the heart, what does our heart say about us? What does our heart say about us? Now, if we took a survey here this morning, we're not, but if I had you guys raise your hands and you, you voted, I believe it would be a unanimous vote that we would say, yeah, the heart matters so much more than appearances matter. Yes, like we agree with that. I think we would all say that with our lips. But I'm, I'm afraid, myself included, that our lifestyle says the opposite. That we spend far, far more time on our appearances than our hearts. I was asking myself this, and I challenge you with this as well. Did you spend more time this morning preparing your heart to come here and to hear God's word or your appearance? 
Did you give more thought to, to what you would wear this morning or thanking God that he's clothed you with his righteousness? Did you give more time to showering off this morning than praising God for washing your soul white as snow? If we really believe that the heart matters more than appearances matter, then why do we spend so little time preparing our hearts to worship and to live for Christ? Church, let us focus on the heart. Focus on the heart. Now, you might say, well, Ryan, that... That sounds great, but I don't know how to do that. Like, I know how to work on my external appearance. I go to the store. I buy clothes. Like, I, I go and I find different deodorant to wear that I smell better or different products to put in my hair, whatever that would be. Like, I know how to do those things. I know how to go to the gym, build a workout routine. Like, I know how to take care of my physical body. But you're telling me to take care of my heart. Like, how do I do that? Let me give you a couple applications with this. Remembering all the while that God is the one that's looking at our hearts. The first is prayer. We're going to continue to come back to that over and over again, like it's a theme for this year, right? But see, we have to pray because God knows our hearts. Psalm 139, there's a prayer there. And the psalmist says, God, search my heart and lead me to the way everlasting. And the reason that he's praying that it's because elsewhere in Scripture it says that our heart is deceitful above all things. See, our heart can justify every selfish thing that we do. Our heart can come up with a reason of why it's okay if we don't do this, or why it's okay if we don't do that, or why we don't follow God's command. We can give a list of excuses. Excuse is not the answer, right? And so we pray, God, I have a deceitful heart. I need you. I need you to clean out my heart. I need you to exchange this heart of stone for a heart of flesh that I would feel the things that you feel, love the things that you love. God, would you help cleanse my heart? And all that we would be intentional to pray that God would prepare us to do his will. We started a, a kind of family tradition that every Saturday night, Saturday night we pray for Sunday morning. And there at the dinner table, we sit and we pray before our meal that night. And as a family, we pray, God, prepare our hearts <laughs> Because they're prone to wonder, God, we're not thinking about you. We're not thinking about your word like we should. Prepare our hearts. Tune our hearts to sing your praise tomorrow. We do that on Saturday nights. And then before we go to bed that night, we pray again. We pray for Sunday and we pray for, for you guys. And we pray for those that are serving in the kids ministry and our worship team. We pray for you guys. Say, God, we're coming expecting. We're coming expecting the Lord of all creation to speak to us and to change our hearts. God, would you help us to focus more on the heart? Another application I would give is be a part of a small group. We are prone to wonder, and having a group of people that you trust enough to, to lower your walls of an appearance that everything is going perfect, and be real. See, we all know that the fake you is doing just fine. The fake you is great. And we need a group of people that we can be honest and say, this is where I'm struggling or this is where I'm having trouble. In first service, coming in through the Welcome Center, the lady stopped me and she's like, it's been amazing how our small group has loved us and prayed for us and cared for us. It has helped us through an immensely difficult time. We need that. We need somebody that will look past our appearance into our hearts and love us enough to speak truth. And that's what we pray and hope small groups would be here at West Cabarrus Church. So be a part of that. 
Church family, God is looking at our hearts, at our hearts. So may we not, may we not have the eyes of Samuel that are blurred by the past or our, our anxieties. May we not have the eyes of Jesse who can only see the outer appearances and miss that God is doing something deeper that we can't see. And the last thing I want us to see today is how God sees. How God sees. You see, this perspective is vastly different from all the other perspectives. In verse 7, God clearly states that there's a difference between how the Lord sees and how man sees. It says the Lord sees not as man sees. He can't be any more clear with us, right? He looks different. He sees differently. God has a point of view. He has a point of view that we will never have. If we look at this and think about this text, when it talks about the Lord sees, not as man sees, see, God isn't limited as we are. God isn't deceived by outward appearances. He's not unsure of the future. God knows all things. He sees this. See, when God gives us commands that our hearts immediately want to disagree with, we have to trust that God sees what we can't see. When God commands us to do something that we're like, no, 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 that's an old command from the past. That was just, that was so long ago, God, you just, you totally missed it. No, God, when he put that in his word, he knew the future. He knew where we would be as a society. He knew all these things, and he placed them in his word. We trust the one who can see all ends. Where we are limited, he is unlimited in his view. God sees miraculously. And as he sees, he looks to the heart. He looks to the heart. Now, if you only read this passage, if you only had chapter 16, we would read it and we would think in our minds, man, you know what? God sees differently. And so when he was looking at all the sons of Jesse, he was like, nope, that heart's broken. Nope, that heart's wicked. Nope, that heart's corrupt. And then David walks into the room and God's like, ah, oh, look. His heart's good. He's got a great heart. And so that's why I'm choosing him to be king, because he is so good. But those of us that have read the Bible, those of us that know David's story, know that that's not the case. His heart is just as wicked as your heart and my heart. His, his heart is just as corrupt as his brother's heart. So when it says God looks at the heart, then why in the world does God choose David? I believe God chooses David, and we'll see this in the weeks to come, because David knew how to repent. It wasn't that it was a sinless heart or a perfect heart or a pure heart. It was a heart that knew how to repent. And so when God convicts David of sin, he obeys the command of the Lord, and he repents, and he comes to God, and he asks for God to forgive him of his sins. There's a whole chapter we're going to look at, a prayer from David, Psalm 51. We're going to look at it this summer, where he's praying a prayer of confession. I think that's the difference. That's the difference. That's why later it'll say he's a man after God's own heart. Not because he was perfect or he had an external appearance of righteousness. It was because he knew how to repent of his sins before the Lord. You see, it is grace upon grace upon grace that God chooses David. And David, later on in his life, sees that and knows that. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, you'll see the verse on the screen. This is later in David's life. And he says this. He says, because of your promise, that's the Lord's promise. 
all of this has happened. Because of your promise. And according to your own heart, you have brought about all of this greatness to make your servant know it. David, towards the end of his life, doesn't look back and be like, hey, God, it was because of all the good stuff I did, and it's because of all the promises that I made that all this great stuff happened. He doesn't even say, man, God, it's because of my great heart. My heart was so good. This is why all this amazing stuff happened. No, he says it was God's heart. It was God's promise. It was God's grace in my life that all this happened, that all of this happened. Grace upon grace upon grace, and we desperately need that. And as God looks out and sees the depths of your heart, the sin and the wickedness, the things that you treasure in the dark that you feel like nobody else sees that God sees, he looks at that sin and he's willing to offer you grace and forgiveness and purity and and holiness found in him. See, this, this grace that is extended to us that we see here in the life of David This isn't the the pinnacle of the grace of God. See, the greatest picture of God's grace is found when we see another child. A child that would be born in Bethlehem. And he's not allowed to to come in, but he too is kept out with the sheep and the animals. The one that wasn't just forgotten by his father like Jesse was, but was forsaken by his father as he went to the cross to bear all the wickedness of our hearts in order to extend us forgiveness. This is the beauty of the gospel. The most beautiful, brilliant, majestic one in the universe, Jesus Christ, lost all of his physical attractiveness and came to earth. Isaiah 53 says it like this, he had no attractiveness by which we should desire him. That's speaking of the Messiah that would become. That's speaking of Christ. The most beautiful being lost all of its physical attractiveness. Why? So that we, being spiritually unsightly, could be found beautiful in the eyes of God the Father because of what Christ did on the cross for us. He paid the debt that we owed for our sin, the wickedness of our hearts. Let that good news of grace Stir our hearts to repent as David repented of his sins. Let us remember the grace that the most beautiful being in the universe became ugly for you. The most powerful being in the universe became like a runt, the smallest one, just like David. Why? To extend salvation and forgiveness to you. He went through infinite agony to get you. See, if we can grasp this truth, It'll change our perspective. If we believe in Jesus and repent of our sins, then and only then are we going to be free to see as God sees through the eyes of grace. Only then. Only then. And so I asked it earlier, and as we close, I ask it again. If God is not looking at our resume, our external, if he's he's not looking at our physique, If he's looking at our heart, what does he see? What does God see? How how would you answer that? Does God see fear in your heart? Does he see pride? Does God see self-condemnation that you continue to repeat over and over again that you failed instead of trusting in the one who was faithful? Or does God see a humble heart? 
a repentant heart, a heart of worship. Church family, we, we close our service the same way almost every week. Almost every week we close the service the same way. And it's not because we have a tradition that we have to keep, that if we change it up, then we've broken tradition. No, the way we end service is intentional. Every week it's intentional. It's intentional to get to our heart, whether we realize it or not. See, we close our service with a song or maybe two songs. And we try to intentionally every week plan these songs that highlight back to the passage that we read that week. And I would challenge you, even think about that. As we hear the songs, we sing them. This is not meant to us just to close the service. This is meant for us to praise the Lord. And the reason why, this, why I say this is about the heart is because Jesus said it's about the heart. He says, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so when we hear the good news of the gospel, we want to sing and respond from our hearts in praise to him. It's about our heart. It's not about our lips. Some of you haven't sung because you're like, I'm worried about the people to my left and my right hearing me sing. You know what? It's ultimately not about them, okay? It's about your heart praising the Lord and what he's done for you. We always in service and we talk about your generosity and giving to the church. And some people hear that and they're like, ah, see, see, the church is all about my money. Jesus is not all about your money. He's about your heart. And Jesus said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so each week we mention it with a thank you for your giving. We challenge you to pray over your gift that you give to the Lord. Because this is a, a symbol of you placing your heart before the Lord and saying, I love this and all things it can bring me. But God, I love your kingdom and your will and your way more. It's about the heart. And then we call you to respond in faith. To respond to the gospel. We have a, have a place called next steps. Take that next step of faith, whether that's baptism or trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Getting involved in a small group, having somebody pray for you, take that next step of faith. And this, clearly hear me as we close service, this is not an external appearance that we do of like, well, good, I'm a holy person because I went back to this next steps area and people saw me, so now I'm more holy. No, it's about a heart issue that God stirs in your heart. And as he stirs in your heart and he changes you, you respond to that. Jesus looked at people at his time who were really good at keeping the religious acts And he looked at him and he says, you are a whitewashed tomb. Your external appearances look fabulous. You look really great, but inside, at the heart, you are dead. And so, yeah, we we ask you to respond in all these ways every single week because it's about the heart. It's about what God is calling us to do to respond to him. He's looking at our heart today. He's stirring in our heart today. Church, let us respond to the goodness and grace of God in our hearts. Pray with me. God, thank you for your perspective, that you're able to see what we can't see. And God, for some of us, that breeds fear in our heart because we know what's in our heart. We know the idols of our heart. We know the sins of our heart. But God, we're thankful as you see to our heart, you see with eyes of grace God, you came low in order to bring us up. You forgave us when we were faithful to repent of our sins. And so, Lord, would you continue to do that today? And as you do that, as we grasp the gospel and we believe, God, may we respond from our heart, respond in our singing, but from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
respond in our, our bringing as we give an offering to you because, Lord, we know that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. We want to love the things that you love, Lord. And, Lord, we want to respond to the gospel, not just in outer appearance, but because you stirred in our heart and we want to respond according to the way you stirred. So, Lord, help us to do that this morning. And then as we go out this week, help us to live the gospel faithfully day in and day out from the heart that you've changed. God, thank you for the hope that we have through Jesus Christ to purify our hearts. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand and let's respond with our lips from our heart to the glory of God.